Hey, Living Planet listeners, Charlie here. These next two weeks, Living Planet is taking a short break. And while we're away, we're playing some of our favourite episodes from the past year. In the meantime, if you'd like to reach out to us, you can do so at any time by emailing us at livingplanet at dw.com. We'll get back to you when we return. Okay, here comes the episode. DW Living Planet with Sam Baker. Hello and welcome to Living Planet. Today, we're heading to South Africa, Kenya, and Namibia to look at different ways conservation has taken root to sustain some of the region's most iconic species elephants, rhinos, lions, hyenas, and more. <coughs> And we'll examine some of the problems with classical models of conservation and what alternatives there are to meet the needs of people who share space with these animals. That's all coming up here on Living Planet. Good to have you with us. One animal that particularly captures the imagination of people around the world is the critically endangered black rhino. Found in some forests and on savannas in Namibia, Kenya, and South Africa, black rhinos now count to more than 5,000, after being poached for many years. A female black rhino reproduces every two and a half to five years, so rebuilding their population can take some time. But there is hope to save these majestic creatures, as DW's Andrew Wasike found out in a community sanctuary in northern Kenya's Samburu region. Now we are tracking the rhinos. We are going to, for rhino tracking. We went to track the rhino with a calf, uh, and all of a sudden, it was suspicious that we are around. And then uh, it, it, it tries to escape, uh, but uh, we tried for the second time, and uh, actually she saw us, and uh, she disappeared completely. Yes, Ranger Joseph Losangero and I just lost the trail of a black rhino we were trying to follow. I am at the Serra Community Conservancy in Samburu, Kenya, on a bright and sunny day, accompanying rangers who are checking up on the conservancy's rhinos. So far, all our attempts have failed. The rhinos scamper away when we approach. The Rhino Conservancy took in 10 critically endangered black rhinos back in 2015 and since then have helped double that number to 19. That's not counting the current rhino calves, of which there are four at the moment. According to the World Wildlife Fund, black rhino numbers have doubled from their historic low of 2,500 in 1995 to around 5,500 today. But that's still a lot less than the estimated one million rhinos that once roamed this savanna. I ask Los Angeles if they have lost any rhinos at the conservancy. To my surprise, those they have lost were not due to poaching. We have lost two calves due to predators, and their mothers just left them to go for water. Then after coming back, they got that the leopard has snatched them out. And uh, since uh, we started uh, this sanctuary, we didn't have any case of poaching. That is right. There has been no poaching on this land since the conservancy was established. Now, we are making our way to meet Lojipu, a six-year-old black rhino who has been spotted nearby. 
As we approach, Lojipu is feeding on what I first mistook as a bush. His enormous head and squared lips lower to the ground. Lojipu is eating under the watchful eye of his caretaker, 30-year-old ranger Salome Lemalasia. Lemalasia explains the sumptuous meal the rhino is munching on. Right now, I am here watching over the rhino as it feeds. He is feeding on a mixture of grasses and wild tree leaves. It is only because we are experiencing a drought that we are intervening and feeding him. We will feed him until the rains start falling again. Lemalasia comes from the local Samburu nomadic pastoralist community, a community that was known in the past for hunting wildlife. I started taking care of this rhino when he was just nine months old. Now he is six years old, and we are inseparable. I have always taken care of him. He responds to me as my child would. As a calf which was abandoned by its mom, I used to feed him milk three times a day. Now he is all grown up and goes to eat in the wild. This local pastoralist Samburu community has proven that local communities can do a lot in changing the narrative of endangered species conservation since its establishment. They have achieved this zero poaching record across a 107 square kilometer sanctuary, Ranger Losanjore tells me. The area of Samburu used to be a battleground for warring pastoralist communities over pasture, water and livestock. A spiraling cycle of cattle theft ensued between rival ethnic groups. During this time in the late 1980s, and thanks to a thriving black market, poachers took advantage and killed rhinos to harvest their horns. But then one community member had a vision for a different type of income, one that helped animals rather than harvested them. I am Ruben Lendira. I'm Sierra Conservancy Manager. My role in Sierra Conservancy I'm the one that uh, deal with the daily operation of conservancy and also in charge of uh, all operation within Rhino Sanctuary and the entire community. And Sierra is uh, within the two uh, community land, that's Sorolifia and Rosesia. The two community uh, came together to form, uh, to set aside for conservancy. Lendira convinces community to spare some land to create a Rhino Sanctuary owned and operated by the community. The returns will be employment opportunities and stable revenue for the community. They were able to raise funds from NGOs and obtain security assistance from the government. Today, this community conservancy is part of the Northern Rangeland Trust, an organization run by 43 community conservancies. Working with the Northern Rangeland Trust, the local community here is leading the endangered species recovery while reaping benefits from it through employment and tourism revenue from the Saruni Rhino Lodge that has been erected in the sanctuary. Through conservation, they also are able to get education bursaries for their school-going children up to university, and it also offers security for the greater community and employment. Nearly 90% of the Sera Conservancy staff, or over 100 local people, have been employed as guards, rangers, drivers, and other staff. This is very unusual as normally conservancies employ rangers from the Kenya Wildlife Service who are coming from other parts of the country or other communities. 
Edwin Wanyonyi is the Kenya Wildlife Service Strategist Director. He says that they are also making the lives of rangers more comfortable so as not to overburden them as they conduct their work. There's a new strategy in the entire KWS that we're focusing on housing uh, for rangers. We are focusing on uh, buying them new equipment, uh, be it the firearms, whatever they require, be it the uniforms, be it cold weather clothing, that they can be able to respond at, at all times. In a way, the whole community is responsible for the security of the rhinos and people trade information to protect them. Locals patrol the area day and night working with the Kenya Wildlife Service officers to secure the area from poachers or human activities close to the protected areas. They have had very few cases of run-ins with encroachers, but never poachers. Ruben Lendera, the Sera Conservancy Manager, explains some of the measures they used to fight poaching. Right now, we have already put uh, six live cameras in all water points. And uh, that thing again, we are also improving technology. And it can monitor in case any breakages along the fence or even any suspected people migrating around this fence. The move by this parcelless community that has donated its land shows what indigenous communities are doing to value and conserve biodiversity. Their goal is growing rhino populations close to their maximum potential. So, what is their potential? I asked Lendera. Before we fence, we did what we call an assessment. Uh, so, we normally do what we call a, a breeding a projection. And uh, the number that uh, rhino can compete is around to 60. With enough space for 260 rhinos, this rhino population has a lot of room to grow. Ranger Los Angeles says that local people now see their value and protect them as they wield their livestock and community. Having uh, zero cases of uh, rhino poaching, this means that uh, people around, uh, their community around, have seen the importance of taking care of wildlife. And uh, that is why we are all having that uh, initiative to protect our wildlife for our young generation to come. Zero cases of rhino poaching also means I was finally able to see a rhino with Los Angeles. It was a marvelous experience seeing the stocky gray, six feet tall and 1.4 tons animal, an experience of a lifetime that I will never forget. Andrew Wasike, DW Samburu, Northern Kenya. Now, one way environmentalists have sought to fund conservation in recent decades is through tourism. International visitors spending money to go see wild animals they would otherwise only see in a wildlife documentary. Both South Africa and Namibia boast popular vacation destinations that attract North American and European tourists to go on safari. Of course, the pandemic upended this model, as international tourists were often barred from traveling abroad and domestic tourism didn't amount to enough to fill the gaps. The industry is slowly starting to recover, and some are calling for a strong resurgence of international tourism to fund the conservation of threatened species, while it's leading others to wonder if the tourism for conservation model is broken. This report, filed by Jana Gent, is presented by Elliot Douglas. The tourists who come to South Africa are often looking for one thing, majestic wild animals in their native habitat. The country is considered a dream destination for nature lovers. 
In 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic began, more than 10 million travelers came from abroad every year. The dramatic slump in tourists has been crippling for the industry. And it may be bad news for the mammals, birds and marine wildlife to make the area so attractive, says Paula Kahumbu from the African Environmental Fund Wildlife Direct. I think that uh, some of the most obvious things is there's been a drop in the amount of available cash for conservation, which means that uh, many of the protected areas are um, struggling, I would say, particularly when it comes to the private conservation areas and conservation areas managed by communities that don't depend on state funds. For private reserves, the tourists mean everything. The larger national parks, however, including the Kruger National Park in the country's northeast, are supported by the government. Funding for them was not cut even during the pandemic when revenues plummeted. Before COVID, the tourism industry accounted for 7% of South Africa's gross domestic product. But the most recent figures showed that the industry contributed only 3%. Megan Carr is part of the EMS Foundation, a Cape Town-based wildlife organization. She is not expecting a quick recovery. The private um, reserves have suffered immensely, the ones who have relied or who rely on tourism completely. I think it's going to take years to recover Many, many years. South Africa has extremely fragile ecosystems that are protected by law. In the neighboring country of Namibia, some 40% of the land area is protected. The Namibian government has already enacted species protection plans for lions and elephants. And strategies are currently being developed to protect rhinos. (laughs) Aside from ensuring long-term environmental protection, the economic reason for doing this is obvious. Nature reserves are and will remain Namibia's most important tourist attraction and therefore an important source of revenue. This is Living Planet. I'm Sam Baker. Now, not everyone believes conservation efforts and the business of tourism should be so closely linked, including my next guest, Mordecai Ogata, who is quite critical of this practice. Ogata is a carnivore ecologist from Laikipia, Kenya, which, well, I'll let him tell you a little bit more about what it's like there. This is an area that has a lot of leopards, lions, hyenas, a few cheetahs, wild dogs as well, and there's no national park. So people just live in and amongst wildlife. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of loss of particularly sheep and goats and quite a few cattle as well. This obviously is conflict that uh, leads to loss of lots of wild carnivores uh, by retaliatory killings or problem animal control. So my interest was to reduce the conflicts so we can hopefully reduce the loss of carnivores and loss of livestock and the impact on livelihoods. So that's a bit about why he became a carnivore ecologist, which I must say is a very cool job title. Ogata is also the executive director of Conservation Solutions Africa, a natural resource management consultancy, and he's taught and done research for Colorado State University in the U.S., But Ogata is probably now best known for his strong and somewhat controversial views on conservation policy work and human rights in Kenya. In his book, The Big Conservation Lie, co-authored with journalist John Mabaria, 
Ogata is critical of foreign nonprofit organizations that use donations to set up tourism businesses and safari outfits in the name of conserving wild species. He calls out their patronizing attitudes and for removing local people from their lands. And he calls for a different way of thinking about conserving wild species, one that includes humans as part of the natural world rather than divorcing us from it. I recently spoke with Mordecai Ogata from his home in Lykepia, and I started out by asking him about conservation's reliance on tourism in countries like Kenya. So tourism itself is not a problem. It expands people's horizons, it educates people, it opens up their minds. I found in my career now working, tourism being assumed to be a reason for conservation rather than just a byproduct of conservation. And that has caused problems because it it results in us prioritizing the needs of tourism above the needs of wildlife and, and people themselves. These include the way we admire certain animals more than others, yet none of these live in isolation. So when you get into tourism, you, you get into a lot of uh, people who are single species conservation programs like save the elephants, save the lions, save this, that, the other. Yet none of these species live in isolation. Tourism is a business and tourism funds hotels and safari operators, as we'd expect it to do. If I talk about Kenya, the money which goes from tourism into conservation is the small amount that is paid as park entry fees. Tourism does not fund conservation, but this myth has been very durable and and is very widely believed. Yeah, if anything, when I think of tourism, I worry about the negative effects of tourism on places and ecosystems, you know, just too many people being there, the flying and traveling to get to other places. This has a lot of environmental impacts. Yes, Wildlife survives in spite of tourism. If you look at the big draws, like the Maasai Mara in Kenya, the density of lodges and tourist camps, the amount of trash coming out of those camps, the traffic of vehicles going there to deliver beers and various other hotel supplies, the sewerage they are putting out into the Mara River, the impacts of tourism are very heavy on the environment. And and the other thing is that We forget to mention that the typical tourist who comes on safari tourism to Africa is someone with a very heavy carbon footprint. You see two people flying around in a helicopter because that's what they paid for and that's what the business is. So every business aims to succeed. That automatically means that they'll be seeking the wealthiest, most uh, heavily consumptive tourist because that's where the money is. No one wants to make less money. What do you see as the major problems standing in the way of conservation today in Kenya? The other problem we have is that uh, we seek to drive wedges between resources, wildlife, and people. East Africa is known to be the cradle of mankind. People have evolved with these rangelands, these animals, these, these rivers, these lakes here over millennia. And I think I never thought I'd say this, but right now there is too much philanthropic funding for conservation coming into Kenya. It might not be too much in terms of the exact amount, but there is too much coming into too few hands. There's a few organizations that are getting huge amounts of money for which they cannot show need for. So we need to examine the role of NGOs 
And so you have these large international NGOs doing work in Kenya. Can you explain a little bit how that looks on the ground, how that structurally works in terms of the work they're doing? Generally, how it looks on the ground is the creation of what we call a conservancy. They're basically conservation or protected areas that are outside the state system, like national parks and government-run reserves. How they create them is that they come in on the ground and find this community living in a place where there's wildlife, and they come and say, hey, we want to make a tourism facility for you so you can make money from it. So first thing we need is for you guys to move out of this particular area. Once that is done, the NGO gets donor funds and comes and builds a lodge. And then the lease fee for the land is pegged to profits. All these NGOs do is hire very smart accountants who declare losses year after year after year. So they end up with this land with elephants and lions and everything in it and a lodge in it, basically rent-free. And then the other very serious problem is that to guard these lands, they operate arms and ammunition outside the state system. So we have an armed group of people here working at the behest of an NGO. Some who donate money to these groups or the groups themselves would argue that this is important work they're doing to stop poaching. What would you say to that argument? Poaching is a bogeyman. Deliberate wanton destruction of wildlife on large scale, it's a Western thing. It's something that happened in the United States with the bison, the passenger pigeon. It happened in Europe as well. Africa, there's there's been some use of wildlife for food, but the poaching and trade in wildlife parts is a foreign influence that has come into Africa. Even where it happens, it happens to feed external markets. So poaching is a bogeyman, but it's a very important bogeyman because it justifies any violations of rights that may happen. Because even in Kenya today, if someone tries to kidnap someone on the street or steal a car, the police will pursue him and seek to arrest and prosecute him. If you are seen inside a national park, the rangers do not seek to arrest you. You get shot on sight. That's what the whole hue and cry in the West about quote-unquote poaching has caused. I'm curious, do you think foreign NGOs should be focusing their efforts on other things? For instance, combating climate change, which, of course, we know countries in Europe, North America, and Australia have some of the highest per capita greenhouse gas emissions, or other issues that are global and do still impact wildlife in Kenya and around the world? Yes, I think the biggest single problem today is pollution. I mean, that includes emissions. That's number one problem. And I think these NGOs avoid addressing those because, you know, there's no good optics of emissions. But you cuddling a baby elephant is wonderful optics. And that brings money. And it's all about the, the money. You you hear them talking now about um, population. And they talk about population in Africa. But the crisis is consumption patterns and emissions. And the truth is that a village of a few hundred people in Kenya probably consumes and emits as much greenhouse gas as a family living in, in England. What is the carbon footprint of the royal family? I mean, Prince William is always going on about population of, of Africa. The carbon footprint of the royal family, it's massive. And that's what we need to focus on. 
Looking at some of these issues and how conservation is approached, I'm curious what you think is needed to address these problems. What alternative models are out there for how we should approach conservation? Conservation should be fully handled by Kenya government, if I'm talking about Kenya. Because like you look at Kenya Wildlife Service, that's a law enforcement organization. They should handle wildlife crime prevention. Conservation should stand on its own as a duty of the state and of the people that is done even if not a single tourist comes. Conservation has to be treated as a principle and uh, also a field in which logic reigns. You know, like not anyone can be a doctor, not anyone can be an accountant, but it seems absolutely anyone can be a conservationist. Anyone who decides to come to Africa and say, I've dedicated my life to conserving baboons or chimpanzees or whatever. So I think we need a huge dose of skepticism all over the world, not just in Kenya. And conservation in India or China should be as per the needs and aspiration of the Indian people, Chinese people, and in Kenya, the needs and aspirations of the Kenyan people. We need to unlearn that thought that the West is right in terms of conservation, or what I call conservation colonialism, where you have these ideas developed in the West and imposed on countries in the global South, countries that have environments that are far more intact or in better condition than the environments in the countries from which these impositions are coming. So if you are discussing, let's say, elephant conservation, at that table should be African countries, Asian countries, those that have elephants. European countries shouldn't be at that table. Just like if you are discussing polar bears, there's nothing that the Kenyan delegation should be doing in that room. You've written quite a bit about balancing conservation and development interests including people in the solution and, of course, as part of nature. What does this look like in practice and what are some of the key factors in balancing conservation and development interests? I'd say balance conservation and livelihood interests. Again, with pastoralists, pastoralists are very important in wildlife conservation because all our wildlife habitats, certainly in East Africa, are areas that are occupied by pastoralists. And this is because their production system is developed over millennia and it is the best and lightest footprint. It's not by mistake or a coincidence that there's so much wildlife in Maasai land. It's because the way the Maasai live is friendly to wildlife. So we need to strengthen that. And how do we do that? Help them out with veterinary assistance so that maybe you mitigate the number of, of livestock you lose to disease. So that will mitigate the impact of the one or two or few they might lose to wildlife, to lions and hyenas, because they probably lose more to tick-borne diseases than they lose to carnivores. And then again, access to market, fair trade market. The whole world is moving towards free-range, grass-fed beef. It's logical. Of course, people have been in what is now Kenya, in this part of Africa for millennia. They lived alongside nature. What were indigenous relationships with nature like in Kenya in pre-colonial times? First of all, it was not without conflict because they'd be, okay, there was agriculture. You'd have monkeys getting into your maize field or your fruit trees or whatever. But conflict was low level. The people would seek to avoid it. 
no one would take his livestock, for example, into a thicket at dusk. People would keep them in corrals at night. These were conflict mitigation things. As far as people's personal relationship, wildlife was revered. We did not desire to cuddle them or to shoot them and hang their heads on our walls. We lived with them, we observed them, and they went out their way and we went on our way. That's why right now, I think experts in this day and age should be seeking to strengthen and, and streamline that living with wildlife. Don't try and make us love them. Just help us to live with them as best we can in the current realities. And that is complicated, but I think that's why we have PhDs and experts in the field. That was Mordecai Ogata, carnivore ecologist and co-author of the book, The Big Conservation Lie. And with that, we come to the end of this week's Living Planet. If you have questions on this topic or any other environment issue, we would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us at livingplanet at dw.com. Thanks this week to Misha L. Springer and Ileana Gilarducci in the studio and to Evelyn McClafferty for help with production. I'm Sam Baker. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the globe. No, this isn't a podcast about milk. If you like historical intrigue, a bit of culture, and a sprinkling of controversy, this one's for you. I'm Rachel Stewart, and I'm traveling around Europe, following the hidden history of everyday things as they're exported through time and around the world, by force, by chance, or by choice. No need to pack your bags. Just subscribe to Don't Drink the Milk wherever you listen to podcasts.